Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to How to Be Sound, your fortnightly guide to life and more. Presented by me, Rosemary McCabe. I clearly think I'm hilarious. I started this podcast because I was having so many inspiring conversations with inspiring women and the occasional man that left me thinking, wow, that person is way sounder than I am. So I thought sharing those conversations might make interesting listening on your way to work or home from work or whatever you happen to be doing right now. I hope it's something fun. A little housekeeping before we get started. I have recommenced the dissemination of my newsletter. I call it the Rosemary McCabe fortnightly, but it's actually more like the Rosemary McCabe bi-monthly because before this week, the last one was at the end of January. And I'm also in the midst of overhauling my site at rosemarymccabe.com. You can sign up to the newsletter on my site and you can also let me know what you think of the redesign and I would appreciate you doing both of these things. And finally, if you're shopping from Amazon or ASOS, I've included an affiliate link in the show notes. Using my affiliate link means I'll get a teeny tiny percentage of your purchase price, makes zero difference to you and just helps me to continue to make content for you to consume. Now, back to business. In this episode of How To Be Sound, I am joined by journalist Ellen Coyne, who's a senior reporter at The Times Ireland, to talk about a post-repeal world. Ellen, thank you so much for joining me. No problem at all. I got in touch with Ellen last week to see if she'd come on How To Be Sound, and we weren't quite sure whether we'd be rejoicing or lamenting. Ellen, did you have any idea about how it was going to go? No, like the Thursday before the vote on Friday, I was down in Roscommon, Leitrim and Longford with some campaigners who'd gone down there to help because obviously it was still carrying that almost stigma of being Mm. the only constituency that voted no to marriage equality so they thought the best way to spend their last day campaigning would be down there and in hindsight I feel like an idiot because I was following them around Boyle in County Roscommon and it was an absolute revelation like they went into two housing estates where there had been a woman that traveled you know they were getting like four or five yeses and a no it was so obvious that repeal was really strong but me and all the campaigners that I was with just kept giving more weight than was appropriate to the one no Mm. so clinging to that and almost multiplying it by five and just not really counting for and it even got to the point where I was keeping a tally in my notebook and I could clearly see that the yeses were basically 70 30 to the no's so absolutely represent very close to being representative to the final Mm, result but There was just this kind of incredulousness that was among, you know, me, other political analysts and also the campaigners themselves. Like, I I don't know why we bought into the idea that this was going to be a 50-50 thing so much. I'm not sure if the broadcast debates fed into that, but I like I really believe that, you know, despite what a lot of people would say, nobody really saw this coming. Yeah, I mean, I think the broadcast debates did have a lot to do with it because, and you know, obviously there's a huge conversation to be had now about what balance actually means. Because when you're watching the debates, you're going half of the people in this room are for no and half are for yes. And I think the issue was as well that the people who were for no 
often had the more shocking things to say or were using the more emotive language. So it almost felt like if, if, if people were watching at home and they were undecided, that they would go with the ones who were saying the shocking things. But that's what yeah. would jolt them out of being undecided. And I think the ironic thing is that the campaign for Yes put so much of its uh, language around trusting women. But at the same time, we should have just trusted the Irish public to see through you know, a lot of the stuff that was said at the no side was absolutely misleading. And I have heard a lot of people today saying, you know, where is the place in society now for people like David Quinn and the Iona Institute? Like they saturate the media. They do have so much access. Mm-hmm. But I suppose the problem for them, it's almost like the opposite of being a victim of your success. They benefit from being unsuccessful because that side is so unrepresentative that there aren't many organisations who hold those views. So they're the only one. So they're the only ones that people can bring on. And I do feel sorry for broadcasters who are, you know, restrained by that sort of thing. But when it gets to the point where you have somebody on talking about like a new, better sex ed programme and you're pulling on somebody from the Iona Institute beside them, I'm just wondering who is that serving other than Mm -hmm. making the broadcasters feel better because it's certainly not representative of the Ireland that we're living in at the moment. And it's so interesting because I definitely, I was so worried last week and I was going, God, I really don't know if it's going to be a yes because I think, I think you're worried as well because you know you're in an echo chamber. So everybody on my Twitter that I was following and who's following me is saying, yeah, you're right. And, you know, yeah, we're going to vote yes. But then you're going, Jesus, where is everyone else? And I feel really bad now for being such a bigot, basically, that I was like, Dublin is so woke, but it's the country (laughs) we have to worry about. And I'm from Kildare. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like I was thinking about that a lot as well. And marriage equality, I 100% supported it and I'm absolutely delighted that it passed. But it's not comparable because marriage equality, you know, people, there was people in the country who thought they did not know somebody who was gay and wanted to get married. And I mean, there would be a lot more LGBT people living in Dublin than the rest of the country. But there is no geographical monopoly on crisis pregnancies. And everybody knows, like, I mean, you're talking about... As one of the campaigners said to me, she was like, you could almost estimate that every single day we get 10 more yes voters because you have women every day who are traveling or taking the pills. And I think that that we should have we should have realized that. And I feel especially stupid because I did this twice. Like I didn't think that the Citizens Assembly would come out with the result that it had. And I watched people going through more detail, like who know more about abortion than I do, than a lot of politicians did at the time. And they came out with that result. And I know that people say that I will say that that process was a good one just because I got a result that I am happy with. But even if you look at it objectively, it was a conversation about abortion that Ireland has never had. And I've never seen a conversation about something as emotive as that play out in that kind of way in any other country like it was amazing public policy exercise and it also gave politicians cover to go for what some people would have described as abortion on demand something that was politically inconceivable from basically 2016. Yeah we were chatting a bit before we came on air about an event that we were both at around two years ago when Senator Catherine Zapponi was there I distinctly remember her saying that she was really worried that if this went to a vote and if if we were asked or presented with the idea of abortion on demand, that we would get a no. And I found that kind of profoundly affecting for me that especially once the government came through and said, this is the legislation we're proposing. And it was, I mean, much more extreme. You know, I kind of thought we might repeal the Eighth Amendment and the hard cases would be allowed to have terminations in Ireland and then we'd have to work some more to get it for everyone else. So when they came through with the legislation, I was going, oh no, this is, like Catherine said now, if, <laughs> if they bring this forward, it's not going to go through. And I was so worried about it. 
there was up until now in Ireland a conversation which I actually found quite sexist where you deserved an abortion if you had either fitted the traditional role of a woman in that you wanted to be pregnant and very sadly found out about a fatal fetal abnormality or the other idea that women are fragile and can at any time be victims of sexual crime. But if you had sex and enjoyed it there's absolutely no political appetite for you to be able to access a termination if you need one, if you really cannot continue with that pregnancy. And I think that we really patronised Irish people by allowing that to be the only political conversation that we were having up yeah. until now. Abortion on demand, I, I keep calling it that in quote marks, by the way, I don't realise this is a podcast, uh, but that was always treated as this big bogeyman that would follow and turn Ireland into this like horrible, you know, wife swapping sodomites type place. <laughs> but like we patronised Irish people by assuming they were terrified yeah. of that. And after the Citizens Assembly came out with their result, uh, one of the politicians was like, you know, we were always told that rape, incest and fatal fetal abnormalities would be the thin end of the wedge. But they've just asked for the whole wedge straight out. And the anti-abortion side were really frazzled by that because they didn't have their core argument anymore. They had to defend the Eighth Amendment, which I didn't hear anybody successfully do over the course of that referendum campaign. No. And I mean, it was so interesting because I think once you started to debunk the the Eighth Amendment, or I mean, any conversation where you went, if you think that women who have children who will not survive are allowed to have a termination, if you think that women who are raped should be allowed to have a termination, if you think that 12-year-olds should be allowed to have then you do not support the Eighth Amendment. And I don't know anybody in the country who is saying, no, a child who is raped should be forced to give birth. I mean, even like Pather Tobin, who kind of was trying to say, was kind of trying not to say that, but also trying to, to say that. He was trying not to deny it. But you could tell that he he wasn't actually saying, yes, I would force that child. Do you he know what I mean? He was put on a primetime debate to back something that he didn't believe in. Like the last few days of the referendum campaign were a disaster in terms of media strategy and communication from the no side. For the first time in the history of the pro-life movement in Ireland, and certainly for the first time in the Eighth Amendment's existence, you had anti-abortion people conceding that there was a problem with the Eighth Amendment, that you do need to look at rape, incest and fate. Sure, that was the Mm. referendum won as soon as they conceded that. Like that is the whole point. And I think scrabbling like that in the last few days, that as well. How didn't we know at that I, point? I, like that, that, we should have known. I was just known. thinking that because because I was watching those debates and I was going, "Oh God, I'm still worried." As if I was suddenly going, "Everyone outside Dublin is real thick now, and they're not <laughs> going to get this." But I know that they've lost it now. But still, all these stupid like it's awful. Yeah, like the poster I, we put. There was so much time wasted at the start of this campaign with like reams and reams of analysis about who had the better posters and who had more of them up. Thinking about it now, I can't think of a single human voter I know who would be like, well, I really enjoyed the posters on one side, but the other ones, like on an issue as important as this. I I know it's so easy to sit here now in the comfort of the Eighth Amendment going, looking at the referendum in hindsight, but like there were so many parts of it that were just so silly. I don't know how it wasn't clearer to all of us from the start that it was going to be a yes. But you know what? I think though the fact that we weren't complacent is what won it because I think if three or four weeks ago we'd been going you know what? This is ridiculous. Of course it's going to go through. I think people wouldn't have had those important conversations with like my mom. my parents actually ended up out of the country which was infuriating but my mom said to me at one point so are we voting for for abortion on demand? And I had to kind of go no. No, no. Like well I mean in a way yes but actually mostly no. Because it's about the Eighth Amendment. And yes, that is the proposed, you know, so to sit down and talk to people. And I think there were probably a lot of people around the country like that who ended up having conversations because they were worried. 
and ended up changing the minds of people who maybe didn't know as much about it as they thought they did. Yeah, I I completely agree. And like, I think it is good to bear in mind as well of those 1.4 million people who voted yes. This is probably sounds like a crass way to say it and a very unfeminist way to say it. But for some people that yes vote to their mind was almost the lesser of two evils. Like they were thinking, what what is worse, the status quo where there is rape victims traveling, fatal fetal abnormality stories that are horrendous, or a country where there's abortion legislation that I am slightly uncomfortable with. And we know that in practice, like having those views, having anti-abortion views is something that I can be very compassionate with. I was raised very, very Catholic and I would kind of almost subscribe to a diluted version of believing that life begins at conception. And I think it's important to realise that, you know, the vote wasn't about having a national ethos on abortion where we all decide whether we're for or against it. Where we all agree, yeah. Yeah, because that would just be really cruel to those people. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know it's very hard, but like you can remain anti-abortion and still live in exactly the same country because nobody's explained the moral superiority to having a termination in Liverpool rather than Limerick. Yeah. And we know in practice, like this abortion law, when it passes, the sky is not going to fall in. It's not going to put in or out on anybody. No, exactly. Let's go back a little bit, because to me, one of the driving moments of this entire campaign, not to like blow smoke up your ass, was your your expose last, it was April, wasn't it, of last year? Can you tell us a little bit about that and basically explain for the uninitiated, what am I talking about? (laughs) Yeah, I was surprised by the amount of people who mentioned that on Saturday, because when I wrote it, I didn't see it as a, a... a repeal the eighth related article. But basically up until now in Ireland, there has been no regulation of crisis pregnancy agencies at all. So that means that me or you in the morning could set up a crisis pregnancy agency that will deal with women who are in some of their most vulnerable situations, some of whom might not know a lot about the current status quo. So abortion still being banned in Ireland for a long time, since at least 1997, very vicious extremist anti-abortion groups have been setting up fake crisis pregnancy agencies. I mean, they'll have a receptionist, they'll have like an ultrasound scan machine. They used to all be called words starting with two A's, so like the Adam Centre, so they'd be the first one on crisis pregnancy agencies in the phone book. But now they're putting rakes of money into Google adverts. So if you put in abortion Ireland, they will come up first as one of the first Google ads. And basically what they do is you will come in, they will act very convincing, almost professional, and just tell you that if you terminate your pregnancy, you will get breast cancer, you will turn into a child abuser, you will lose all of your organs. Is this what they told you? Yeah, we did an undercover investigation in about three of them all connected with different anti-abortion groups. And they're very clear, like the arguments were very similar among all of them. Like these kind of breast cancer claims are an infamous and incorrect claim by anti-abortion groups all over the world, particularly in the US, where there's a lot of these rogue crisis pregnancy agencies as well. But I think in Ireland, it's a bit more vicious and malevolent because they use delaying tactics. And by the end of it, it's too late to get the flight to the UK. Mm -hmm. The whole point of it is these people think that they are saving a life. So they don't care. They'll do whatever. They'll do whatever. If just to absolutely terrify you and scare you into continuing a pregnancy. Yeah. Um, And it is kind of scarier here because it's all shrouded in secrecy. Do you know what I mean? So like women going to these agencies, you can pretty much bet that they haven't told more than a handful of people, if even. 
you know, and that they're not getting advice from various different unbiased. They haven't probably talked to their GP. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. And like we have literally got a law that regulates the amount of information you can get on abortion in this country since 1995. And they will use the Eighth Amendment to their advantage. We've heard anecdotal stories of girls being told, you know, if you go over when you come back, there'll be a guard waiting for you in the airport. And that is credible because the Eighth Amendment means that like there is a 14 year prison sentence for illegal abortions. Mm -hmm. And not a lot of people know that we do have a constitutional right to travel for terminations. So for years, I mean, Simon Harris was probably in primary school when these groups were first set up and they've been connected with illegal adoptions. So compelling somebody to continuing a pregnancy and then passing their baby on illegally to somebody else. Like it's real horrible, dark stuff. The other concerning thing about them is some of these groups work in Ireland and the UK. And in their kind of UK manifestation, the exact same people that run these road crisis pregnancy agencies in Dublin, Cork, Galway, Limerick, protest outside abortion clinics and will hand women pink or blue rosary beads uh, to indicate the gender of their baby. They'll call them ma'am. They'll give them teddy bears. They will harass them and intimidate them. And if they are the kind of people who are capable to do something as crazy as set up a road crisis pregnancy agency. I don't see why they wouldn't try to do similar things here Mm. if and when we legalise abortion. Oh God, it's so scary. And were you shocked by what went on when you went in? I mean, obviously we've all heard these stories, but were you kind of going in going, it's not going to be that bad? I think the worst thing about it was it almost took watching back the tape two or three times to appreciate the mentalness of what they were saying. Like when I say to you now that they told us that abortion causes breast cancer in child's women, like that sounds shocking. But the way that it was being said and like we went in there eyes wide open knowing that these people are deceitful and they're not who they say they are. They were still kind of codding us. So if you go in there thinking that this is a genuine crisis pregnancy mm-hmm. agency, you're also pregnant and probably don't want to be. Yeah. Like that's the other thing as well. The only women that they target are women who are thinking about abortions because it's a waste of time targeting a woman who will continue anyway or is considering adoption. So they only want to target women who are putting things into Google that indicate that they are looking in for information. And most of them are just looking for information on how to get to England. Yeah. Um, it's just, I think it is just such an, an obvious example of like, like really crass exploitation of people at their most vulnerable. And the most shocking thing about the story was when it came out, the reaction from what we might call mainstream pro-life groups, who I assumed would immediately distance themselves from these groups and condemn them, but instead chose to attack us and act like this was an act of bias on our part. I can't really apologise for the fact that there's nobody on the pro-choice side who set up rogue agencies that lie to women. And I think at that point, again, it's great having hindsight I should have appreciated that there was a real solid nasty streak in the abortion anti-abortion campaign that we saw elements of in the referendum as well that's so interesting because 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 my next question was going to be did anyone actually defend the clinics so obviously they did oh, yeah so to speak well they did they ne- they never condemned them and they attacked us but they never openly defended them. The people who run the clinics defended them staunchly and are still defending them. As a result of our story, Simon Harris has moved to legislate to regulate crisis pregnancy agencies for the first time. But it's going to take a long time because they're going to have to set up a kind of body to oversee crisis pregnancy counsellors. Yes, so it's going yeah. to be like at least a year. They're in the meantime accessing hundreds, if not thousands of women in crisis pregnancies. But that was viciously 
fought by these groups who maintain that they're basically doing the Lord's work. They still claim that abortion causes breast cancer. They claim that the media for some reason wants to cover that up because I want people to have abortion so badly I would happily let women get breast cancer in the process. Like these people are religious extremists. There's no other word for it. And the fact that the anti-abortion campaign, knowing that a referendum was coming up, would not seek to distance themselves from that and kind of make themselves voter friendly, I just think was so silly and so stupid and just shows the kind of absolutism. Yeah, and and I mean a certain short-sightedness I think as well. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, in hindsight, but like how did we think they were going to win? You know, I know, in a way, I know. Like, this is ridiculous. Like they're, you know, hashtag not all pro-lifers, but some of them are ridiculous. Well, that's actually a really good point. Like the no voters that I know, I don't feel like they were represented by the no campaign at all. I feel like the no pe- the people I know who voted no, you know, you would argue that it was it the vote didn't represent what they thought it did. They were answering a question they weren't asked, which is, do you think abortion is right or wrong? But those views come from like a real sense of compassion and justice for the unborn child because Mm -hmm. of those people's beliefs. And those people are like lovely and compassionate and get really, you know, heartbroken about the idea of those so-called hard cases that keep coming up. And I feel like that kind of, that level of compassion and generosity within no voters wasn't represented by the no campaign at all and I know a few people who like younger women like I don't think we should underestimate how many young women were reluctant about voting yes as well we are still a country where like people have been raised very catholic where the catholic church still has a monopoly on schools in certain parts of the country and those women were just completely put off by some of the tactics that were used particularly i think the posters outside the maternity hospitals i think that that alienated so many people and it's just it's actually pure arrogance to think that you're you being having the position you think is right is enough that you don't need to bother to try and be compassionate and coax people to see things from your perspective. I think it's particularly ironic when we've all endured at least four years of seeing the pro-choice side consistently being told to watch their tone Mm -hmm. and then the no side come out with a campaign that completely got the tone wrong, completely missed the mark. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And didn't connect with normal Irish people at all. 
The town policing thing is mad and they're still doing it now. I know, I know. Literally like two hours before the polls closed, Together for Yes was still getting unsolicited advice on how to run a campaign. Yeah. And I think like if I was a campaigner, the first thing I would do if there was a referendum is canvas the houses of all the most prominent political analysts in the country. So then we would all be saved from three weeks of journalists going, well, I haven't been canvassed, so I think it's an absolute (laughs) failure. Like just, I just think that like people had no understanding of what was happening in like kitchens in Leitrim and people's homes in Roscommon or chats over cups of tea. I mean, you look at those campaigners, the ones I'm thinking of that we met on Thursday in Roscommon, those girls are like slaving away in a constituency where they're all told that everyone is uber conservative, that they're never going to win repealing the Eighth Amendment. These girls, like their names aren't known. They're not the kind of people that show up on media debates. They mm-hmm. don't have a bajillion followers on Twitter. Yeah, they're not wearing the jumpers on. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But they've just been slaving away at this for years and years and years and just got loads of people to have conversations. And there was no recognition of that at a national level. And I think that we've all been talking over the past few days over who deserves to be thanked for this and the women repeal repeal hero and who deserves recognition but I think one of the best things about this is there are so many women who can claim to have helped to have done this that we'll never like you'll never be able to measure all the women that did this and there was just no recognition in terms of political analysis of what those young women and older women as well were doing across the country and men and men to be fair and men as well hashtag definitely not all men hashtag definitely not all men to change the subject slightly, but also not, I'm really interested in, in your road to journalism and, and in your career path a bit, because I feel as if nowadays a lot of young women wanting to go into journalism feel that their only way in is features or celebrity or entertainment sites. And maybe like a, a women's lifestyle magazine, a women's lifestyle site. And that's not to demean or denigrate those publications, because I'm a big fan of, of some of them. I was going to say a lot of them, some of them. And I think they often get unfairly maligned because they're like chiclet, you know what I mean, publications. But have you ever felt as if, because you write a lot about politics and news and current affairs, have you ever felt as if these fears were male-dominated or is that just a generalisation, like us all thinking it was going to be a no? Do you know what I mean? Is that just me generalising unfairly? I think that like it is amazing. If you look at the press gallery in Leinster House at the moment, there are so many women on it and young women as well. Like the Irish Times, the Examiner, the Independent, like us, we all have young women writing political stories. But if you look at the people who get invited on to Sean O'Rourke or the equivalent to just give their opinion on what's happened and do some analysis who aren't really on to talk about their own story, the people we still recognise as the big political thinkers are men. They're Mm. all male correspondents. I know that everyone's been, you know, laying some blame with the media and saying that we, we missed some things with the referendum. I think that there is some credibility there in when you looked at something like the Citizens' Assembly, where you had loads of journalists covering it all along, and then male analysts and political correspondents the next morning after results saying this would have to be watered down and it would never pass. Mm. And the other issue as well, being a woman and writing about women's issues, is you get treated like it's some sort of pet project. And you that, obviously have a horse in the game. Yes, exactly. Exactly. This is very this is very close to you, is it? I'm Tell us obviously your story. like super yeah, exactly. Like yeah. that I'm some sort of I'm eventually gonna come out with like hashtag my abortion story or something. That it's like a, it's inappropriate bias 
to be a woman and to be writing about things that young women care about. But I've never seen anybody accuse all the political correspondents who've covered the tracker mortgage scandal wall to wall of having inappropriate bias because they own houses. Mm. Because it's so obvious to everyone that that's an issue that deserves to be covered. It's like yeah, a social justice issue. But when it's women writing about social justice issues that have to do with women, that same argument just doesn't seem to apply. I mean, we don't see male sports writers on the late late being asked to tell us about the time they broke their foot and, and were no longer <laughs> eligible to be in the premiership. Whereas, I mean, because I, I'm thinking about it now as we're talking about it and going, the late late for, you know, as an example, often has women on telling their sob stories and often has men on talking about topics. Yeah. You know what I mean? That aren't like, well, here's what happened to me, Ryan. But the women's stories are here's what happened to me and why I ended up talking about this or, you know, here's why I started talking about the domestic abuse I suffered or here's... And I mean, there's another argument as well that women do get, you know, are victims of domestic abuse more than men are. So that's why that one. But you know what I mean? That like women get asked to come and tell a first person story. That Because I think that women are still not seen as authoritative voices on subjects unless it's a lived experience. Yeah. And that's the only that seems to be the only point at which we can trust what a woman is saying when she's speaking about it from personal experience rather than being like, yeah, Yeah. rather than just being like, well, I've actually just studied this subject for years. I've written about it from every possible angle and I've spoken to loads of experts. So like I am the best voice on this and I'm speaking to you about it from an objective point of view. It's also just because it fits the idea of like women being soft like tragic ridden creatures who volunteer their own story have to volunteer their own stories before we can be convinced that things need to change that things are important yeah I was just listening to um, Control Alt Delete which is a podcast by Emma Gannon who's an author in in the UK I think she's London based and she was interviewing Louise O'Neill and Louise was saying that she had been at an event with a female author and a male author and the male author had read a short story and say his name was John Collins right and the story was about a short story writer named John Collins <laughs> who lived somewhere. And she said that it was really interesting because after, you know, everybody was laughing along and clapping and afterwards people were going, oh, that was a great story. And she said she will write a story about a girl named Emma who's been gang raped in her hometown and people will come up to her and go, I'm so sorry that happened to you. And she's going, no, no, that wasn't about me. But she was saying that like people seem to think that not almost all of her fiction has to be her story. Whereas he told a story about a man with the same name as him and people somehow believed it was fiction. (laughs) That is just like the perfect example. Like Louise is an amazing writer and was able to write a book like asking for it because she's good at her job. Yeah. And again, the same assumption is she couldn't possibly be an authority in her field. She couldn't possibly be just a very good writer. Like she has to derive it from. And I think I saw the same thing happening when Marion Keyes brought out the break people were assuming that something had happened in her marriage. In her marriage, yeah. Even though, like, she has an incredible track record as being one of the most successful fiction writers that the country has ever produced. And I just, I, I as you say it, like, I never see the same thing happening to male writers. You know what? I really want to look into this now because I'm thinking about there are so many different things in life. So when I used to write about fashion for the Irish Times and I used to go on expose on their fashion panel occasionally, I stopped doing it eventually because I was going, like, you could not pay me enough money for the mean tweets that I get about this. And I would get people, like, atting me going, oh, my God, how can you write about fashion? State of you, like, you're fat, you're, you look terrible, you have terrible hair. Like, I mean, some of which are true and, and aren't <laughs> insulting necessarily. But you know what I mean? Like, I found it really upsetting and I was going, I'd have to be getting paid a thousand euro a week to endure this. But one thing that always struck me is that when I wrote about fashion, people would often meet me or see a photograph of me and make a comment about, oh, like you write about fashion. Whereas nobody ever looked at like the chubby guy writing about football and went, you, 
You're right about soccer. <laughs> That's you know such what I mean? a good point. Yeah. So like, like, like people expect women to be what they're covering, whereas they it, don't exactly. expect the same of men. Exactly. And I feel like people often think that I'm some sort of like socialist anarchist because I was writing about things. But I've never seen anybody say the same things about men who have certain very obvious political leanings that do seep into their work. Yeah. And the same thing just isn't said of them. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Phoenix called you a hackette. Yeah, I know. Which I really enjoyed. (laughs) That was particularly, I mean, that was particularly bad, but I don't know if that's um, a style decision at the Phoenix or what. But yeah, like that sort of stuff kind of pops up all the time. And in 2015, like the Ireland edition of The Times was only set up that year. And we decided straight off to like have a very obvious focus on women's issues. And people were acting like we were alienating readers, like we were being too niche and stuff. And now... (laughs) Like, it's mad, isn't it? I know. Like women's issues are niche. Literally, like one of the biggest political stories probably of the decade, like one of the biggest referendums we've ever had. And 2015, like I was coming to it pretty late. Like I've only yeah. been writing about it a wet week compared to other people. Some people have been writing about it for 30 years. And we were still told then that it was kind of too soon, that the writing was too aggressive and then it was just alienating people and catering to a minority. And people were saying, oh, you know, it could be a good paper if it just didn't have so much women's stuff on the front page, as if this wasn't hugely, hugely political. Yeah, and important to not just women, but also men, all of whom are born of women <laughs> and, and are related to women and will like may have women. You know what I mean? Like, it's so mad to think that like a woman's issue isn't a man's issue and vice versa. Exactly. I mean, this idea that you can't have compassion for something until you have some skin in the game. Like, I think we're all for months and months just going to have wives, sisters and daughters playing in our heads over and over and over again from all the politicians who had to qualify their statements and couldn't just be like, this is actually completely wrong. Or even from a very like unemotional level. I am a legislator and I just think that the laws that we have should be good. And this one obviously doesn't work. Yeah, and, you know, they should be good for everyone. And what do you think is going to be, what, I mean, so you're going to get back on your feminist hobby horse. <laughs> you're going to get back to being a hackette, <laughs> right? What's, so what's going to be the next fight? I think that um, after the Eighth Amendment, I have been thinking a lot about it. And I think that this is probably a good moment for women in the media, particularly, to think about which women's stories make it to the top. And repeal affected a lot of people. It certainly disproportionately affected poorer women and women who might not have the right to travel. And I think that it would be good if we just reassess, you know, why is it that something like the gender pay gap gets so much coverage? Could it possibly be because it affects the rich women writing about it? And personally, I think that I would like to try and take the time to educate myself a little bit more about issues that don't affect white middle class women. Mm. Um, And the obvious one for me would be a focus on direct provision, I think, as the next thing. And just kind of think about like post repeal. Do we need to look at the fact that we've got we do have more women in the media now, but are we being intersectional enough or are we just focusing on issues in Ireland that affect well off feminists living in Dublin? Well, I mean, I can't think of, well, I was going to say I can't think of any prominent women of colour in the media. There was, um, I know, Claudia Gokul, who is, I think, either black or mixed race, and I hope neither of those terms is offensive but she was working at Exposé magazine but 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 then that closed down and she went into PR as so many of us do end up going into once our our, our other publications fold but I can't think of many you know or like any women well, of colour I can't think of any trans women I can't think of I mean obviously we have 
like we do probably have a lot more LGBTQ campaigning women in the media, but still white middle class. Not that that doesn't, you know, not that I'm like, you have to be now I know, at, least I, two th- at least two two boxes on I know the list. That. And Ireland is a very small country as well. And we are not as diverse as other places. So sometimes it can be difficult, particularly when journalism takes so long to get mm-hmm. up kind of yeah. to the top. So it will it will take a while for those women to come through. Yeah. But at the same time as well, like I thinking about it, don't even know that many working class journalists, like before you yeah, even get yeah. into anything else. And I suppose the issue with the media as well is like I didn't really come from a very middle class background. But once you end up in the media, you are going to become middle class anyway. So the things that affect you are not going to be the things that affect other people. And like we are just human beings and we will just see things through the prism of the things that affect us. Yeah. And those things will get disproportionate coverage and compassion. Yeah, of course. Although we do try, like um, obviously like some people do amazing work. Um, like, I mean, Kitty Holland has been really fantastic and mm-hmm. kind of focusing yeah. on those marginalised people as as a lot of journalists have. But I just think for me, after repeal, I'm just trying to be extra conscious of it before we pick like the next thing to campaign on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe the next thing isn't like, why are women's Gillette Venus razors so much more <laughs> expensive than men's Mac 3 razors? And maybe exactly. it's like something exactly, else. Exactly, exactly. Kind of lastly... I've been going on about this a lot. I think I've talked about it on this podcast a couple of times, but I recently read Tina Brown's Vanity Fair Diary. Obviously, I've never read anything else, but I've read this one book. And one of the things that struck me most was about the time and the money that went into journalism back in the 1980s. And she was talking about, I think she commissioned someone to do like Hunter S. Thompson's trip across the US or something. So she commissioned someone to repeat this. And people were paid $10,000 for a feature. Oh, my God. Right. So what I want to know is if you were to be commissioned to do something like this, that's going to take weeks or months and you're going to get a huge figure, but you can go and do it. So, you know, it's almost like your your S-Town podcast. You can go and you can take six months and we're going to pay you to do this incredible piece of investigative journalism. What are you going to not to put you on the spot? What will it be? Uh, I can honestly say I've never thought about it before. But because I it's th- not a reality. No, because no. it's a fantasy, obviously. Yeah, like and I would never upset myself by thinking about it too much. But I think um, the one thing that is has been niggling at me for a long time is the fact that it is such a small country, but there is a huge unreported issue with women in rural Ireland who are being raped and abused by their partners. Like, the one thing that hasn't recovered since the crash is the funding that we give to the rape crisis centres and to people like Women's Aid Mm. who are being forced to do more and more work because as society changes, women are identifying as victims and coming forward, which is fantastic. But we're encouraging them them to come forward and we don't have the resources in place to help them. And it's very bad in Dublin where I think after everything that happened last year with Me Too and even with the Belfast rape trial, they now have a waiting list of like six months for, and obviously they can prioritise I hate saying urgent cases because obviously every case is urgent, but that's just the snapshot that we get in Dublin. And when you think about places where you don't have, there's a housing crisis, so you can't go anywhere else. You're in the middle of nowhere. Like, I think that these women who are also not counted as homeless once they flee their home, I think there's a huge issue with that. And I would love to have the time and the resources to get out of Dublin and just spend spend some some time, time, like building a picture of that. I think that you know, for all the talk and the fact that, like, it is fantastic now that feminism is populism in Ireland for, I think, We're the first time. We're all woke now. We're all woke now. Simon Harris is, like, apparently the new heartthrob of the country. And Dreamboat. Pe- socialists are being nice to Leo Varadkar. 
But like, it would be great if we could just kind of focus on the very, very basic things like the second most serious crime in our statute book not being so common and so tied to a woman's socioeconomic status. Like just last year, we had a really, really, really long campaign to try and get a second savvy report. And all the savvy report is, is a a piece of research that counts how many victims of sexual crime we have in the country. We have no idea what it is at the moment. The last time we did it was 2002. That was... That was basically ancient history in terms of how we think about women and sexual crime. And you could say that one of the reasons there was a reluctance for it is once we find out the scale of it, you're going to have to fund it better. Yeah. So I think if I was going to pick one thing, like that's something that actually really pisses me off. And I spend a lot of time in smoking rooms bitching about. So if I had that amount of money, I think I'd probably pick that. Two things on that. Number one, Facebook has recently introduced something where when you put up a post and I'm not sure it happens on all posts or if it selects something that it thinks is political, it will give you an option to donate. I put up Lily Allen's video for Fuck You and I said, this is for Cora Sherlock and Maria Steen and John McGurk and John Waters. This is this is when my my uh, super tone policing did kick in. Like, I think this is very uncouth, but it gave me an option to donate or to 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 add a donate button. Okay. so I added a donate button for Women's Aid and I think a few people donated and it's up to 75 euros. So like it's not massive, but it's actually quite a nice thing. So that's something to keep an eye out for if if you're on Facebook and you see something that says click here to donate. Absolutely. You can do that. Or if if you are a content creator or influencer then and you have a Facebook that that's something that you can add to some of your posts. And the second thing is so you know, when Simon Harris was on the debate last week and, you know, the whole country was absolutely going, he's just brilliant, he's great now, I love him. And I was going, Fina Gaylor, and he's great. Like, my friend sent me his wedding photograph and she had photoshopped my face into his wife's oh face. Oh, my God. Right. And it was hilarious. And I tweeted it and was like, oh, my God, like, all my dreams come true. I also sent it to my mother who said, I don't remember his wife looking like that. Oh, my God. And I was like, Mom, that's, that's me. That's your child. Yeah, you made me and that's my face. But a friend of a friend of mine works in his office no. and showed him the photograph. No. And oh apparently, oh my God. Which is kind of gas because I think I had tagged him in the tweet anyway, right? So I was like, he'll probably see it or not. He was obviously very busy. But she showed him the photograph and apparently he was like, did you do this yourself? I was oh really God. freaked out. Oh my God. I think it's been a scary time for him. Um, I mean, I for any, people usually hate the health minister. Like yeah. it's usually like the least... In popularity contests, the health and minister always And they were holding loses. up signs saying, I fancy, I fancy Simon Harris. And then like actually smooching him on the cheek <laughs> and stuff. Like this is bizarre. It was honestly like some of those videos you see of the Beatles coming to like Japan. It literally, I it was, was standing insane. behind him at one stage when he was on the stage and it was like, it was like he, he was a rock star. Did he smell amazing? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm only joking, I'm only joking. He actually smells quite neutral, I think. Oh, well that's healthy. Yeah, I think that's, that's kind of what, that's well, that's what you want from a health minister. He's like yeah, sanitised. Like he's always using the hand gel and stuff. He's probably in hospitals a lot. I don't know. On that note, Ellen, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on How To Be Sound and talking about the scent of Simon Harris. <laughs> Aside from buying or subscribing to the Times Ireland and supporting quality journalism to boot, and there's a current offer running, this is not an ad, where it'll cost you a euro a week for the first 12 weeks and five euro a week thereafter, so it's well worth it. How can people keep up with you online? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Ellen M. Coyne. It'll either be completely inappropriate or like really boring tweets about work. There's no happy medium. I'm afraid. Okay. But I think like hang around for the boring tweets about work and you'll be rewarded with the completely Come for the journalism. Stay for my opinions on makeup. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening to How To Be Sound, which will be back on a podcast app near you in two weeks time. I promise. If you're feeling time rich, please rate and review How To Be Sound on iTunes, which helps other people find the podcast. And you can even sign up to be a patron of mine, just like a Dimidici. 
At patreon.com slash howtobesound, you'll find a host of options. You can donate the price of a cappuccino once a month as a way of saying, I like what you're doing, and it will help me make more podcasts, write more blog posts, and eventually write the book I'm always yammering on about writing. If you choose to give $6.66 per month or more, I deem you to be 66% sound, but you'll also get access to a fortnightly minisode, and I will read out your name at the end of every podcast to say thanks. And with that in mind, I'd like to thank the following. Eving McBride, Aoife Bradley, Avril Flynn, Katie Joy, Kira Norton, Hazel O, Louise White, Niamh Nigaon, Rory Spellman, Sharon Lennon, Siobhan O'Rourke, Timmy Hennessy and Una. How To Be Sound is recorded, edited and produced by Liam Garrity, whose own podcast, Meet Your Maker, has been nominated for the 2018 New York Festival's International Radio Awards for the episode Pulling Out All The Stops. Check it out at meetyourmaker.ie. You can keep up with me and everything that I'm up to by following at Rosemary McCabe with an A in my Mac on pretty much all forms of social media, although I've given up Snapchat because I finally decided I'm too old. I also have a Facebook page if you search Rosemary McCabe, and I update it pretty regularly with random articles, thoughts, my own blog posts, and the occasional fun affiliate link. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you all online. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.